You're listening to Secrets of Data Analytics Leaders. So a research data scientist really is someone who um, typically has a PhD, right? So the education across these are different, right? Um, it's typically someone that actually works with traditionally open source tools and languages, right? So they're writing code in Python or they could be doing it in R. They are most importantly focused on discovering. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Secrets of Data Analytics Leaders podcast. This is Wayne Eckerson, your host for the show. In our last episode, Alex Vayner, a longtime AI consultant, provided an overview about how to deliver business value with data science. That podcast was so popular, we asked Alex to join us again to dive deeper into many of the issues he raised, especially how to recruit, hire, and retain data scientists and get value from them. For those of you who haven't yet listened to the first podcast, Alex specializes in building and running high-performance data science teams. He ran data analytics at Equifax and Capgemini before joining PA Consulting, where he is a partner and the data and AI practice leader for its Americas division. Welcome back to the podcast, Alex. Thank you, Wayne. It's nice to be back. Great. Well, let's dive in. Uh, the last time we talked, we kind of skipped over the uh, whole idea w- about what a data scientist is. And I think we'd be remiss not to come back to that topic and just define our terms. So you've been around data science, data scientists for a long time. How would you define what a data scientist is, uh, what they do, and what kind of background they have? Sure. Uh, When I think about the question, the first thing comes to mind is probably dozens of various Venn diagrams with uh, intersecting circles um, showing how data scientists are a combination of math and statistics, computer science, business savviness, um, ability to visualize, ability to ask questions, to be curious. And uh, I think all those things are true. The way I think about data science and what is a data scientist, besides the definitions that no one in the industry or academia seems to necessarily agree on, is what are these folks doing? What is the business value that they're driving and delivering? So one of the ways I think about data scientists uh, is one that differentiates a research data scientist versus an applied data scientist versus a citizen data scientist. All right. Well, you have to tell us what the difference is between those two and, or three. And I'd like to also add uh, statistician. That was the term that we used to use. Uh, and I've had some debates with folks lately that a statistician is not a data scientist and vice versa. And statisticians have this uh, knowledge about models and modeling that data scientists who are more coders don't have. So you're going to have to clear up this confusion here and, and talk about also your research scientists versus applied scientists. And then we can throw in, you know, citizen data scientists for good measure and machine learning engineers. So this whole area is a mess. So I'm hoping you can sort it out for everybody. Sure, sure. Um, so let me take the first one first, um, the research versus applied versus citizens. So um, you can think of this um, in terms of ladder of this both sophistication of the mathematics that's involved in what each one person is doing, as well as the application. So a research data scientist really is someone who um, typically has a PhD, 
right? So the education across these are different, right? Um, it's typically someone that actually works with traditionally open source tools and languages, right? So they're writing code in Python or they could be doing it in R. They are most importantly focused on discovering and applying methods to generate new algorithms, right? It's really a discovery role. And mostly the, you'll find these folks working for major product companies that are investing heavily into R&D. Examples would be Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook. And then these companies really are significantly pushing the frontiers of AI and machine learning. Some are now pushing the, the boundaries of quantum computing. They're really in the process of generating almost new fields. And, and these potentially would be domains of studies. And they, they could be questions for a PhD thesis, um, you know, maybe three or five years from now. So that's the research data scientists. Are these the folks that we may used to call uh, statisticians and they're people that you may pull out of different academic disciplines like operations research, mathematics, uh, social science with a heavy slant towards uh, quantitative analytics? Uh, are those research scientists? They, they can be. They don't have to be statisticians. So, for example, they could have a PhD in particle physics or they really could have a PhD in computer science. Um, the, the particular focus of, of their research is not as critical. Um, what's, what's important is that they've spent significant of time, amount of time doing research, and they're very good at it, and that's what they're actually doing is discovering new algorithms. And they, they could have a bent towards pure mathematics, um, or they could have a bent towards a really um, applied computer science, right? and even on the computer engineering side. So it's, it's, it's really what, um, you know, a type of role that was born out of um, Bell Labs, I think about 50 years ago, right? When um, uh, somebody getting a PhD had an option of actually going into academia and becoming a professor at a university or staying in the industry, but really doing the same type of research and publishing. So one of the things that you'll see out of research data scientists you don't see out of the other two for sure are publications and peer-reviewed journals, right? These are not journals necessarily that, you know, like the CIO magazines where, you know, um, I can publish their journals where really a, somebody who is an expert in a particular field um, would publish and there's a, there are referees that actually review and, um, you know, what you're publishing is, is actually something that's new, something that hasn't been known before. Before, right? You discovered something. That's the that's the focus of, of folks like that. And you know, the only exception being folks that are working in, in high security areas where they may not necessarily have permission of the employers to publish. But these these are the folks who also typically have many um, patents behind their names as well. Okay, that's great. That that really clarifies that. Um, so, what about these applied data scientists? So, applied data scientists are the folks that use the, the, the currently available methods, paradigms, algorithms, um, applications, uh, libraries to really customize and configure data science solutions to a particular business problem. So these are, for example, people that are mostly in, in my practice, right? And, and really, these are the people that are traditionally um, taking 
something that is really well established, right? Like taking something, let's say a, a k-means clustering algorithm, right? That basically looks at a bunch of data and, and for example, can break out customers into various clusters or segments. Now, this algorithm has been known for 60 years and has been improved on you know, many, many times. And the applied data scientist's job is to now you know, take the, the, the best library, depending on the business problem and the type of data they have, right? the type of customers, the type of metadata available on those customers, and then configure a clustering algorithm and, and apply it, right? So what you traditionally, um, applied data scientists have a, an advanced degree. They certainly don't have to. Um, most often a master's degree is very useful. Um, they are using also open source tools, but sometimes they are using um, established languages, for example, um, tools and, and, and models like SaaS, right? If they're in the financial services industry or they're dealing with risk, SaaS has probably one of the most robust sets of libraries available. So you might find um, a data scientist, applied data scientist in our case, using SaaS to configure a, a risk solution for that client. And, um, and typically the additional advantage of an applied data scientist is that, you know, they're, because they're not researchers, they're much more comfortable sort of to move horizontally on the stand, right? So they can go a little bit towards doing some of the machine learning and, and data engineering, or machine learning engineering rather. They can move into doing some ETL, they have a conversation about the business. So one of the advantages of applied data scientists is that they can wear many of those hats, right? So that's the applied data scientist. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Those are the folks that I think we generally refer to as data scientists, people who are applying existing algorithms to solve business problems. Right. So now you've got this third category of, of folks, the citizen data scientists, where do they fit? Yeah, and this category probably has, has gotten the, the most pressed in the last few years. I think one of the reasons for that is that the barrier to entry is very low. So if you think about the previous two types, you know, to be a research data scientist, you have to spend, you know, uh, four to seven years getting your PhD. So that's, that's a pretty significant investment of time and energy and effort. For applied data scientists, you traditionally have a, a master's degree. You still have to, you know, be quantitative in one of those quant fields, whether it's statistics or operations research or computer science or physics. For citizen data scientists, um, you really can have any degree. It could be a bachelor's degree. It could be a degree in comparative literature. Um, really, what you're looking at as someone who is not necessarily trained in programming or mathematics and statistics, but has a curiosity and, and an interest to learn about data and has the ability to even at the highest level potentially deploy um, data science models, but the models that they deploy abstracted. So they wouldn't have a Jupyter notebook open and, and you know, writing code. What they have would be um, models that use software, for example, like Outrix, where they can drag and drop and, and they have you know, a fixed number of levers they can use. They have limited ability to actually work with raw data and do data transformation. Um, they have everything really prepared and set up, and it's a little bit of a, you know, a menu where they can click and say, you know, I want to deploy this type of model, right? And I want it to work with this type of data type. So um, because they're really not trained scientists, 
what a citizen data scientist does is, is, is leverage the pre-existing templates and modules that have been created for them um, to really deploy solutions. Sometimes they're very good at also engaging with the business and being playing the role of the liaison and translator. Okay, so you kind of uh, explained the role that they play, but I know in talking to many applied data scientists that they don't trust a citizen data scientist with an algorithm. They feel that's a disaster already waiting to happen, right? Uh, so can we trust the citizen data scientists? I mean, you mentioned that they're okay if they're using predefined templates that may have been created by the applied data scientists in their company, but deviate from that, maybe maybe that's where they, uh, they run afoul. You bring up a really good point. So the, the, the short answer is yes and no. Where It's really all about where you are on your data science journey. So if you have a product that you've developed and it's industrialized, and really what you're looking for is what I call amplification. You want people to take this product and to spread it you know, far and wide. And you simply don't have the luxury of having enough of research applied data scientists do that. And at the same time, you don't need anyone who's actually going to configure solution because the solution is already done. So in this case, citizen data scientists are fantastic. Um, where you get into trouble is when you're developing a brand new solution where you really need to think outside the box. And maybe the implementation you want to run is not one of the items on the a la carte menu you need to create it. Right? And this is what you're, you're mentioning where, why the, the, the research and applied data scientists skeptical right because the citizen data scientist traditionally simply doesn't have the training and the quantitative background to do that so when you're in your early journey um, doing a POC or beginning to industrialize a solution where there are a lot of variables and a lot of unknowns and you're really experimenting um, you don't need as many citizen data scientists you might need one or two um, because you still need to socialize and manage expectations, right, with both IT and the business, most importantly with the business. But when you're towards the middle of the end of your journey, this is where you're going to need the citizen data scientists because um, one of the advantages that they have over applied data scientists is that actually they're not um, deep scientists, right, which, which means that they can actually go and have a conversation with the business leader and they're less likely to use data science jargon, they're, they're much more likely to present a very easy to understand solution and engage them in a way that actually will result in a, in a stronger partnership. So um, the citizen data scientists are important. It's just important to think about where you are in the journey of developing a product. So is it correct to say that the applied data scientist is the one who creates a new model using existing well-formed algorithms that may have been built by the research data scientists. And the citizen data scientists then apply that model. Uh, are there any situations where you would allow a citizen data scientist to actually create a model from scratch? Or do they always need to apply it? And if they're just applying, well, can't anybody do that? I mean, what, what, what advantage does a citizen data scientist have? over anybody who just you know pushes a button and runs a model against a set of data? So um, short answer, I think yes. I, there, there are situations where I would allow citizen data scientists to create a model, right? It's a situation where I've already developed really a product, uh, but you know the product is a living, breathing thing, right? So 
if I already know the types of modules that need to be deployed, the types of algorithms that actually you know, are implemented, and now there's a new data set that's introduced, and let's say I already have a really well-established set of protocols for how to introduce a new data set that we just acquire to enhance our model. Um, you know, if, if really the parameters are well-established, um, there may not be an issue to have a citizen data scientist, you know, work with a new data set or work with a new segment of customers that were just injected into the model. Let's say a company acquired another company and they acquired their customer base and now they need to enhance their CRM, right, with a new set of customers. If, you know, if really all of the protocols are well established, this is not a bad place for a model to be updated or deployed by the citizen data scientist. So you're saying that the citizen data scientists, if if the processes and protocols are in place, they can update a model with new data, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. They can also run experiments. They have the advantage of having the, the business knowledge that the applied data scientist doesn't have. And that can be a tremendous asset to them because it allows them to actually ask questions that um, you know the other folks wouldn't ask. So running controlled experiments, deploying um, models that were configured and you know, curated by an applied or research data scientist could be an, a, a major advantage to an organization. But the way you described it um, earlier on, just a few minutes ago, Wayne, was spot on. Research is really where you think about creating uh, new algorithms. Applied is where you are you know, configuring them to a particular business problem and data. And, and citizen is, is where you are amplifying and really growing that solution. Okay, so one last uh, clarification. You mentioned a data product, uh, and by that, I assume you mean a model that is designed to address a specific business problem, right? It is, but I would say even it's even more than that. It's not just a model, right? To me, a product, a data product, is actually something that a consumer or a business, a customer, really, can use to drive value for themselves, right? So it could be an app or it could be an, an, an internal service that can be deployed. It could be a, a, a dashboard in Tableau, but it's really, for me, a product is something that I can, anyone, a, a customer can directly interact with and get value from it. So it's a model wrapped inside of some kind of an application that allows some someone to interact with it and, and get value from it. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Cool. All right, so we touched on some other titles uh, like uh, machine learning engineer, you talked about ETL, <laughs> architects. Are those other roles that lie close to data scientists, uh, one of these three that we've talked about? or Yeah, um, some of them are, are, are first cousins, some are second. I think that the line between a data scientist and a machine learning engineer is blurred. In fact, I was just updating our job descriptions for roles on my team. And, you know, my suggestion to my recruiter was just, um, you know, let's label a data scientist slash machine learning engineer. And, and the reason is there's a little bit more of a focus on the industrializing solutions for machine learning engineers, right? They're, they're the people that are out there and the things they're trying to solve are the production side of application, right? It's really taking something that's in the POC stage and saying, well, how do I think about computation? How do I think about parallelizing it? How do I think about runtime? How do I think about um, you know, the production environment and how it all connects to the system? So that's a machine learning engineer. The 
data architect sometimes blends a bit into a systems architect as well. And this is the, the person who's thinking about all of the plumbing, like from the early stage of like, how do I take raw data for some data lake and, you know, moving into a data warehouse and, you know, and, and sort of parse it through all the dimensions of data quality, like accuracy and frequency and timeliness down to, you know, how do I connect an existing, you know, product to the CRM, to the ERP? How do I make that all work? And then towards the end, you know, how do I think about bringing the insights to the actual customer, right? What's the visualization there? And what about data engineer? They get mentioned quite a bit uh, as uh, the right-hand man to a data scientist, uh, the one who actually takes the data that's been uh, architected, I suppose, to, to, to be available and then transforms it so that the data scientist doesn't have to do that work or do as much of it. So... So the data, in my nomenclature, the data engineer, I think, is, you know, is a combination of this machine learning engineer and the data architect, with probably most of the role of the data architect is, um, is in fact, what I think you're calling a data engineer. So it's, it's, it's thinking about dimensions of data quality, thinking about data connectivity, um, and um, it's, it's really everything that's involved in creating this product, which is not the algorithm itself, right? Yeah. I mean, I normally think of a data architect as someone who designs the system that flows data from source to target, right? So the data structures, the data lakes and the data warehouses, and they set all that up and configure that. Um, whereas the data engineer takes the output. Uh, of the data architecture at any point in that supply chain, really, and then makes it ready for the data scientist, preparing it, transforming it, integrating it, et cetera, et cetera. And then the machine learning engineer, that's a new term for me. I, I usually talked about a product manager, but I like machine learning engineer better, where they're taking the end result, you know, the model, and figuring out how to basically throw it over the wall and make it production ready. But sometimes that requires thinking about people and processes, right? So if you have a, you know, a cross-sell or upsell algorithm or, or model running in a customer service center, right? Uh, someone's got to write a script for that call center rep to uh, essentially make the offer to the customer in real time based on what the model is generating. I think that that can be the case as well. The, the way I think about it is through this combination of, of roles that are really required to build a, a final data product. So I think of having a product lead who's responsible for the business and who's going to lead the team. I think of a data scientist who's responsible for the math, right? Uh, thinking about statistics analysis, designing the modeling approaches, you know, thinking through the model governance, everything. Then a architect is responsible for the data, right? storage, ETL, linkage, governance, um, and then the machine learning engineer who's responsible for productionalizing or industrializing the solution, right, which is thinking about, you know, pipelines and scaling algorithms and compute environments and timelines and, and, and optimizing those. So those are kind of the, the, the four archetypes, you know, if you think about sort of the, their notions of the, in literature, of seven archetypes of, of characters, right, the, you know, often a, a Moses archetype or a Jesus archetype or a archetype of Don Quixote, right? These are all archetypes. So you can think of the data science 
of archetypes as well. And that means that every time the person you have on the team is going to be a slight variation. They're not going to be a perfect representation of Don Quixote, right? But they're going to fulfill these functions, sort of being responsible for one of these things, the business, the math, the data, or the industrialization of the solution. All right. Business, math, data, or industrialization. And those four roles you call product managers in charge of the business, um, data scientists in charge of the math, machine learning engineers in charge of the uh, industrialization, and the data architects in charge of the uh, data flow and engineering. Oh, I like that. Uh, well, listen, let's pivot a little bit. Now that we know who we're dealing with, uh, let's ask the big question. Uh, these people aren't cheap. None of those <laughs> archetypes are, and they're easily bored uh, if you don't put them to work in the right way. So what's the best way to acquire, manage, and retain these guys? Yeah, so um, this is the you know, the $64,000 question. Uh, it's, or in our case, probably $640,000 question. <laughs> Um, so, so maybe just to step back, you know, one of the challenges is why, why do we have this challenge of data scientists leaving or being difficult to, uh, to keep on this, this high turnover. And I think what's behind it, right, is, um, the idea that first of all, the world doesn't really know what they are. And it's uh, oftentimes data scientists themselves don't know what they are. Right, it's like that expression by Dan Ariely that data science is like teenage sex. Everyone talks about it. Nobody really knows how to do it. Everyone thinks everyone else is doing it. So everyone claims they're doing it better, right? So then uh, this cycle perpetuates, right? The companies declare we're going to build this, you know, huge data science initiative. Um, you know, that generates a lot of jobs. Data scientists join. They, they realize that, you know, they don't have interesting stuff to do. Um, they don't have clear line of sight to the pipeline of projects. Um, and they hear about another company and then they leave and join another company, right? And then you have social media and that just amplifies everything. So, um, you know, that's kind of what's behind it. Um, and that sort of realizing that is, is good uh, because it's sort of, you know, sort of first admit you have a problem, right? So this is the, the source of the root cause of the problem. So um, high level, what you can do as a leader, um, you know, is... You can just embrace this chaos, right? It's, you know, there's really nothing that you can do to solve it, right? So, you know, if, if, if my boss came to me and said, hey, can you guarantee me that, you know, um, you know our turnover is going to be below 15%, you know, my answer is no. Um, that's not realistic, um, you know, for the reasons I just mentioned, right? Um, the other thing you can do is just be honest with people. Be honest with them when you're hiring them. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, nothing is more refreshing than hearing the same message on your day one that you heard on day minus ten when somebody was trying to sell you on the job, right? Because it just means authenticity, right? And then you have to be aware of the of of, of the comp, right? So some of the stats um, I've seen. Um, out there is, you know, an average data scientist salary, this is from Glassdoor, is $180,000 versus $64,000 for a skilled programmer. So that's, a, you know, that's almost double, right? Um, so that's the, you know, that's, that's kind of what you're dealing with, right? Um, so I think that sort of setting expectations for yourself or your data scientists and for your management, right, um, is important um, in this regard. You know, growing anything is hard. And you have to think about, do you have alignment with your business to generate that pipeline of projects? And do you have alignment with your IT organization to make sure you can actually 
industrialize it because that's the only way you're going to get the value right is um you know is is focusing on you know do i have um, a product that actually generates revenue and a lot of things have to be checked to do that so um, if you don't have that uh, what you get is um, you know a bunch of data scientists that you hire who are kind of sitting and waiting and what we know is you know they're not going to wait for long uh, we we know that they want to build things right they don't want to just give advice they don't want to create powerpoint slides um, they don't want to just do etl and you know do data warehousing and visualization they really want to build models you know the second sort of problem of you know there's lots of interesting work for them and so you have to solve that problem right by understanding where you are as an organization how mature you are and understanding what kind of roles the ones we just talked about you need do you need a data scientist or do you need more of an architect or a machine learning engineer uh yeah that makes a lot of sense um what about this notion of culture uh, which eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, how how much does culture play into this whole equation of recruitment and retainment? Culture is huge. It's, um, you know, and one of the things that's changing is, you know, what is normal is changing and what's acceptable is changing, right? So the things that are going out are static annual assessments and, you know, the single track career paths, right, from HR perspective, right? You know, the notion that, you know, you have to keep time, the notion that you have to be at work from, you know, eight to six, right? Um, you know, the idea of attendance, right? Um, and, and they're going out, right? The way to embrace that is, you know, to actually fight for your employees and, you know, bottom up, um, erode some of the outdated, archaic HR policies and practices. And that's what creates a culture of partnership and collaboration of trust, really. Um, which is the main thing that you need. So um, it's a young field, right? Which means that it's filled with young people. Um, and that, you know, in particular means, you know, millennials, Generation Z, people from this generation simply won't tolerate the same type of what I call HR badness that, um, you know, some of, the, some of the older folks have grown so just kind of accustomed to. They just they bit the bullet and said, okay, this is how the world is. And I think that um, the younger generation, especially people in data science who are a very hot commodity, right? And can go anywhere, will say, this doesn't work. And, and I love that, right? Because it actually pushes us, the employers, to create better environments, which will lead to better products and happier people, um, which is a win-win for everyone. So if you had to rank what, attracts a data scientist and, and keeps them there. Um, there's money, and we know they get paid a lot, but from what I understand, that's not the, their primary motivation. There's culture, as, as, as you were just mentioning, uh, and there's probably you know the, the work itself, um, which may be, I would suspect, is the most important factor, how challenging, how interesting is the work. Of those three, and maybe there's a fourth and a fifth, wh which are the most important to data scientists? It's a tough one. Uh, I would say um, I'd throw away the status quo ranking and say they're all critical. Um, I don't know, to be honest with you, which one is more important. I think that may change depending on the person. But I can guarantee you that uh, you know, if any one of them is missing, you know, then you, you, you have a stool without a leg and it's going to collapse, right? If there's no interesting work, like you can pay people a lot, but unless the money is just stupid, um, they're just going to leave, yeah. right? Because they want to grow and they want to learn. Um, if you have practices that doesn't 
uh, let people you know, allow people to be actualized, they're going to leave too, right? If you're keeping time tabs, if you're you know you know making mandatory uh, presence from you know nine to five, if you're really stinting their career growth, if, you know if your assessment is well, we only do career investments in, in advancements once a year. Well, that's very 1996, right? You know um, there are much more dynamic ways to give feedback and to allow people to grow, and it doesn't have to wait for an annual assessment cycle, right? So that's our cake. The only thing I would add is on the money side, um, I think that um, there, there's a, a sense of, you know, money is just your base pay or your bonus pay. And I think one of the things that people are realizing and, and which could be a point of leverage for employers is that um, compensation is not just um, the money that you pay in base, right? It's compensation can be actually in the form of, um, things like investment in learning and training, right? One of the companies I worked for had $5,000 a year available for you to invest in any kind of learning and training you wanted as long as it's relevant to your field. So I would go to conferences, right? And I would take online courses and, and, and real-life courses, right? So there's creativity that one can apply to money um, that actually allows you to no doubt outside some kind of a range that HR may have set for you but at the same time makes it an, you know, a, an opportunity very attractive, right? Um, so um, doing something like telling a candidate, you will have two conferences a year you, of your choice that you can go to as long as they're related to your field can be a very powerful recruitment tool, right? Um, because that's not something that necessarily comes standard. So you don't always have to pay the, the highest amount, right? Because sometimes you're competing with, you know, Amazon and, and Google and Facebook, and, and you know, it's, it's very, very hard to compete on just pure base pay. But if you create opportunity in the form of learning, development, flexibility, that really opens up a lot of doors. Alex, great advice. Uh, I think we've come to the end of our time here. But before we depart, is there anything else that we should explore, perhaps... I dare say, in a third podcast, what what else needs to be unearthed that we haven't already touched on? Sure, there there are a couple of potential topics. So one to explore is this this notion of velocity value and the, the agile way to build data products. Um, another notion is something that I've been thinking about a lot in the last year is is private equity. And, and really the idea of um, you know, three or four ways in which private equity can help their funds and their portfolio companies by leveraging data science, something that they haven't done historically, which is a, a huge area of opportunity for both employers and data scientists alike. We probably come up with a few more, Wayne. <laughs> well, those are good. I, I love the uh, how to apply agile to data science. I think that's wholly appropriate to our audience. The private equity, well, uh, I don't know how many private equity guys actually listen to this podcast, uh, but it might be a good reason for them to start doing so. Uh, so we can toss that one around uh, after the show. Um, in any case, Alex, I want to thank you again for coming on and sharing your insights. Thanks so much for having me, Wayne. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please subscribe. If you want more content from business intelligence to data management to data science, browse to the Eckerson Group website at eckerson.com.